worship team for doing that song. I, I actually really, really love that song. I had mentioned to Melissa, uh, you know, months ago, really, that, that I, I love, love, love that song. But <clears throat> you know how you, you, it's like someone sings a song, especially in church, they sing a song that you really love, and then there's like a lyric or something that sticks out to you like in a new way? And, and this was the one that stuck out to me this morning in the first service and even now, which, which um, I, I, you, you, maybe you're like me. Uh, I'm not sure I'm ready to pray this prayer yet, but it was in there, and so I sang it. Um, Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Really? Really? Do I really want that? Probably not but I'm gonna invite God to do it anyway. How many of us really want our thoughts and attitudes tested in the radiance of God's purity? The reality is we have a God who sanctifies us by his grace, who liberates us by his grace, who changes us by his grace, and so when our thoughts and attitudes are tested in the radiance of his purity, we find hope and healing in a God who loves us because he sees us like a child. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look into God's word, which is uh, just what Melissa and the team just sang. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time. Can you believe that? That will echo down through eternity. So I know Melissa already prayed, and we prayed even as we sang that song together, but I would like to do that again as we join our hearts together in prayer. God, let the bowing of our heads represent the bowing of our hearts to you this morning. We echo those words that we just sang. Teach us, Lord, true humility and holy reverence in the face of Scripture. God, as we come before your throne room this morning in song and worship, as we prepare even to receive communion together at the end of our service today, and even now as we hear from your word, God, may we submit our lives before you, so we invite you to speak, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. If you uh, were not with us last Sunday, I just want to kind of catch you up to speed on what we're doing here uh, in this series called The Trellis and the Vine. Uh, What we've been doing is talking about life habits or spiritual practices, kind of rhythms of life that enable us to experience God's grace every moment of every day and deepen our walk with Jesus. Some people call them spiritual disciplines. I just call them spiritual exercises because I'm a gym guy or spiritual habits, spiritual practices, life rhythms, whatever those are, like fasting and prayer and Bible reading and meditation and silence and solitude. We're going to go through all of them in this seven-week series, but here's the problem. When we think of spiritual spiritual practices, just be honest with me here, be honest with me, when you think of spiritual practices like fasting or reflective prayer, what is the first thing that comes to mind? If, if you think of a person that practices fasting and reflective prayer, think of the first thing that comes to mind. Is that a normal person? Perhaps not. Perhaps it's a monk. 
And I think for so many of us, when we think of spiritual practices, that's what we think of. We think of monasteries. And we're thinking to ourselves, like, I'm not a monk, so are these spiritual practices really for me? And even if I wanted to be a monk, I don't think my boss would appreciate if I wore a robe, you know, to work every day. And I'm not going to get my hair cut like that either. So are these really for me? But let me assure you that these practices, these habits are for normal people. They're for you and me. So don't miss this. Healthy, vibrant spirituality is possible. It is possible in the midst of a busy, modern, normal life. So as we talk about these, I want to encourage you, this is spirituality for normal people. Last week, we began in John chapter 15, where Jesus paints a picture of spiritual life. And he says that you and I are like fruit-bearing branches that are connected to a vine. And he is the vine that gives those branches life. And he says that our heavenly father is like a vine dresser that prunes us as his branches so that we bear more fruit. So by by way of review, we're going to declare together as a body what we declared together last week. So I want you to repeat after me so we, we get this really solidified in our minds, okay? Here we go. I'm a branch. Now, it's going to have to be better than that, okay? I am a branch. My job is to bear fruit. As Christ followers, just as a branch's job is to bear fruit, our job is to bear fruit, fruit that will last. And Jesus is the vine. Yeah, see, you're doing great. He gives me life. We are his branches. We are connected to him, and he brings spiritual vitality to us such that we bear fruit. And the Father is the vine dresser. He prunes me so that I bear fruit that will last. For example, in Galatians chapter 5, we list love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Say that. No, 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 don't say that. He prunes me so that I bear fruit. We are his branches. He is our vine that brings spiritual vitality. And the heavenly father is the vine dresser that creates circumstances and situations in our life that prune us so that we bear fruit, fruit that will last. We established together last week as well that when the vine dresser sees that us as his branches are growing along the ground, he lifts us, he cleanses us, and then he attaches his vines to a trellis a support structure like this one because branches and vines are they're climbing vines grape vines are climbing vines they're designed to grow up so he pulls us from the ground cleanses us so that we're not susceptible to infestation or trampling or dirt or whatever cleanses cleanses us and attaches us to a trellis so our goal in this series is to create for ourselves a sort of spiritual trellis it's a support structure by which our spiritual life is, is supported. And that spiritual support structure, that spiritual trellis, to use our metaphor, is formed by life habits, like fasting, like Bible reading, like prayer, like silence and solitude, like celebration, which we're going to talk about on the final Sunday. And, and in these two, in this series, we have two critical tasks. First, we must understand the purpose of a spiritual trellis. 
And we're going to spend a little bit of time on that this morning. And we've, we've been doing this in Trellis Facts, number one last week and number two this week. But it's critical that we understand the purpose of a spiritual trellis, that we don't misunderstand the purpose. Because as we'll see in a minute, if we misunderstand the purpose, it's going to be very, very destructive for us. And the second critical task in this series is what we're desiring to do is incorporate one practice a week. Just one practice per week that becomes a piece of our spiritual trellis. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to begin with a quote by a Christian author and thinker and pastor that really did his life's work on Christian spirituality and spiritual practices. Many of you have probably heard of him. He's a guy named Dallas Willard. If you haven't heard of him, it's no big deal. Uh, So after a lifetime of writing about, researching, and engaging in on his own Christian spiritual habits, Dallas Willard wrote this, and it's critical for us this morning. He said, spirituality, wrongly understood, is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. I'm going to read that for you again because it's so critical. Spirituality, wrongly understood, If we misunderstand spirituality, remember we talked about the purpose of spiritual practices, the purpose of spiritual disciplines. If we get that wrong, it will be the source of human misery and rebellion against God. This is so critical. Understand what Dallas Willard is saying here. He's saying if you engage in spiritual habits, even though they might be things that God prescribes or even describes in the scripture, If you engage in them, but you misunderstand their purpose, they will make you miserable and cause you to rebel against God. They won't kind of help. They won't be somewhat productive, but not as productive as they could be. If you engage in misunderstood spiritual habits, they will make you miserable and bitter. You'll be miserable because you'll discipline yourself spiritually, but you won't bear fruit, which is what you were intended to do as a branch. And you'll be angry at God because you're going, God, I did all these things and I engaged in all these spiritual practices, but it's sucking the life out of me. I'm mad at you. That spirituality wrongly understood. A major source of human misery and rebellion against God. This concept is is really critical for the spiritual habit that we're going to talk about today. But before we talk about spiritual practices or habits, again, let's understand why. So we have this warning that if it's wrongly understood, we're in trouble. Let's understand why. Because if not, if we don't understand why, we will end up engaging in a set of lifeless, pointless, and worthless exercises that will make us bitter, joyless Christians that get angry at God because our rote robotic obedience doesn't get us anywhere. And guess what? Do you know this? All the while, as you're engaging in those spiritual practices that are lifeless and pointless and worthless and not getting you anywhere and making you bitter and angry towards God, you know what God's doing? Look, I agree with you. I feel miserable too, man. Because I never intended you to engage in spiritual chores and check things off of a list. The purpose of spiritual disciplines is to bring life. And if it's not bringing life, God would say to you, that's not what I intended. In fact, there's a Christian missionary that wrote this, a guy named Frank Laubach. I love this. He says, if you are weary of some sleepy form of devotion, listen, probably God is as weary of it as you are. (laughs) 
If you are weary of some sleepy form of devotion, probably God is as weary of it as you are. So in order to avoid the misery and rebellion against God that Dallas Willard warns us about, let's use our metaphor of the trellis and the vine and the branches to make sure that we rightly understand spirituality and specifically spiritual habits. Look up here on the screen. This is critical. Trellis fact number two. The trellis always lifts the branch up. It never weighs it down. The trellis always, every time, our spiritual support structure is intended to lift us up, never weigh us down. Could you imagine if I was a vine dresser and I came along and I found my vine, which is English ivy, but you know, it was a grapevine in John chapter 15. Whatever, you get the point. Okay, so if I came along as a vine dresser and I saw one of my branches growing along the ground and I said, wow, this might need a, a structure that I can put on top of it to keep it down to keep it along the ground where it's susceptible to insect infestation and trampling and everything else. I'm going to create a structure to keep it on the ground. No, the trellis is meant to lift the branch up, never to weigh it down. Jesus communicates this same principle in Matthew chapter 11. Look up here on the screen. He says this. He says, come to me. I love that invitation, by the way, don't you? Just come to me. And, and, and who does he call to come? All who, are, who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, say that word with me, rest. He says this, keep going, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls, for my yoke is, say it with me, easy, and my burden is light. This is the invitation of Jesus. Sometimes we forget, by the way, that Jesus was a rabbi. He was, he was, a, he was an instructor. He was a spiritual teacher. And, and in first century Hebrew culture, the highest form of education that a young Hebrew boy could receive was one-on-one -on -one spiritual instruction from a rabbi or a spiritual teacher. So every young Hebrew boy would dream of a rabbi saying to him one day, come to me, learn from me, take my yoke upon you, because that's the highest form of spiritual instruction that they could receive. On a side note, could you imagine when young Hebrew boys who grew up to be humble fishermen or hated tax collectors got that prized invitation from a very respected rabbi named Jesus? Come to me, learn from me. That's pretty cool. So when those young men, those young Hebrew boys responded to the invitation to follow a rabbi, they began to receive one-on-one -on -one instruction that came in the form of total submission to a rabbi's life pattern. So they would follow the rabbi's rhythm of life and life practices and habits and they would do so in meticulous detail. When the rabbi slept, they slept. When the rabbi ate, they ate. When the rabbi stopped to go to the washroom, they stopped to go to the washroom. They did everything the rabbi did. Those who followed a rabbi were called disciples. Rabbi Yeshua bar Joseph, or Jesus as we call him, had 12 disciples. And disciples would often call that life pattern, that habit, those habits, that rhythm of life, a yoke. 
what they were following after and following their rabbi, that those life patterns, they would call it a yoke. A yoke, in case you don't know, is a contraption that connects two oxen together, like made of leather, made of wood, made of all kinds of different things. And, and, and they did so so they could plow a field. And the best way to pair oxen together is to yoke an experienced ox with a young ox. The experienced ox would help the young ox learn pace and productivity and rhythm as they plowed together. This was the picture of discipleship. So an experienced rabbi was yoked to a young disciple, and the young disciple would learn pace and rhythm and productivity as they plowed together. So when Jesus commands us, when Jesus invites us to come to him, to learn from him, to take his yoke upon us, understand that he is inviting us to become his disciples, his students, his followers, to pattern our life after his. He's inviting us to get in harness with him and allow him to be the rabbi, to take on his yoke. He's inviting us to engage in spiritual habits as he did. Then in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, Jesus does something interesting. He accuses the religious leaders of the time of hanging heavy yokes and heavy burdens around the neck of their followers. But Jesus rejected the heavy yoke of his contemporaries. He says, this is not about obligation. This is not about duty or tedious life-extracting obedience that becomes an albatross around the neck of God's seekers. Jesus was not that kind of rabbi. Listen closely because this is critical. The Jesus yoke is easy. The Jesus burden is light. To live the Jesus life, to walk as Jesus did, brings life and peace, not duty and burden. The yoke of religion is heavy. The burden of religion is heavy. The yoke of Jesus is light. So to use Jesus' metaphor from John chapter 15, we're swapping metaphors now, the trellis always lifts the branch up. It never weighs it down. Let's get really clear. If you are engaging in spiritual practices like fasting or prayer or Bible intake, and they begin to feel like chores, if they begin to feel like obligation or duty, if they begin to feel like a heavy burden, like a heavy yoke, if it begins to feel like a trellis that is keeping you as a branch on the ground rather than lifting you up, If you find yourself saying things in your mind like, I got to read my Bible in order to be a good Christian, so I'll just choke it down. Or I'm a Christian and Christians pray, so I'll just force myself to pray. If you find yourself saying those things and feeling those things, then you have somehow deviated from the intent of those spiritual practices. You are not practicing them as Rabbi Jesus did. You are not living under his light yoke. 
They're supposed to bring life, joy, and refreshment to your soul, not a heavy obligation that extracts life. Just as a trellis supports a branch, spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines support us. They're not meant to weigh us down. I know we've hammered on this, on this point quite a bit this morning, but I think it's critical, especially for those of us who have been in church for a long time. Those of us who have been Christians for a long time. Because we tend to engage in this rote, lifeless, waking, sleep kind of obedience. And we just feel like just Christians are supposed to read the Bible. Christians are supposed to pray. So I'll just do it because that's what good Christians do. I just, I'm going to wrap up this point. We'll move on. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up this way. With Eugene Peterson's translation... Of, of that passage we just read from Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. Listen to the words of Jesus. Are you tired, worn out, burned out by religion? Come to me. Get away and, I'll, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that, don't you? Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Spiritual discipleship in the school of religion is a heavy burden. Spiritual discipleship in the school of Jesus brings lightness of heart, ease of spirit, and rest in our soul. It's very different. The trellis, rightly understood and applied, lifts us up. It never weighs us down. With me? Just nod and we'll keep going. Good. Perfect. So I don't know about you, but the spiritual habit, the spiritual practice that we're going to talk about today, Bible reading, by the way, or Bible intake and scripture memory and scripture meditation, all that stuff, I don't know why this is for me. I got a couple of guesses, but it sometimes feels like an obligation to me. And it, it might be because of what I do for a job, because like part of my job is to read and study the Bible and then talk about it. So sometimes like, oh man, I got to like clock in and read the Bible. You know, like sometimes, and please don't hold that against me. I love you. I love God's word. I love Jesus. Okay. I'm just confessing and being vulnerable. Some of you are going, oh, wow, that's nice. And some of you are going, I'm going to tuck that away for blackmail later, But which, which is fine. And for some of you, you, you love the Bible. You love to read it, study it, memorize it. You can't get enough of it. And it brings you life and joy and all those things that we just talked about. For me, it sometimes can be a struggle. And I think for many of us in this place, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands and all that stuff, but sometimes Bible reading kind of feel like an obligation. Like, I think, I think I probably should, because I'm a Christian, at least, like, pick up my Bible once in a while. And, and so today, what I want to talk about is, is give you some practical tools to maybe, to maybe shift the way you do your Bible reading or understand Bible intake and Scripture intake such that it becomes a part of a trellis that lifts you up, does not weigh you down. Okay, and becomes less like a heavy yoke and more like a light burden that Jesus invites us to. But first, here, here's what I want to do. I, 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 we've got to establish the value of Scripture for spiritual life. So 
what we're talking about in this series is developing spiritual life, connecting with Jesus as our mind. Let's talk about the value of Scripture. This is not a message on, Luke, what about all the you know, supposed errors in the Scripture? Or how did Scripture get compiled? Is it really God's Word? And is it historically accurate? And blah, blah, blah. We don't have time to do that. All we want to do is establish the value of Scripture for spiritual life. And then, and then after that, I want to address a couple of reasons that I think Bible intake for us starts to feel like a heavy heavy burden. I want to give you some practical tools to mitigate against that stuff. So, so let's start with why Bible intake is, is critical for our spiritual life as believers. No, number one, Scripture defines the other disciplines. Scripture defines the other disciplines. So whatever your favorite way to interact with God is, whatever comes easiest for you, in terms of connecting with Jesus and learning from him and walking with him. For some of you, it's coming into this place and singing songs together as a community. Like, I really connect with God and worship. Maybe some of you listen to preaching. Maybe some of you connect with God in silence and solitude. Introverts, that's not me, but God, God be with you. God bless you. Uh, you like doing that. Maybe some of you like to connect with God in nature or in prayer or journaling. I'm not a journaler, but maybe some of you are. I'm just telling you, no matter what that discipline is, it was defined by the scripture. Scripture shapes our entire spiritual support structure and trellis. If, and this is a big if, if you're having an authentic encounter with the one true God, you would not be having that encounter with him apart from what is defined in the scripture because scripture defines God's terms for relationship. In many ways, Scripture, again, shapes our entire spiritual trellis of of habits. Thus, Scripture is valuable even as it is applied to other spiritual habits because it brings clarity, richness, and definitions to those spiritual habits that would be non-existent apart from God's Word. Scripture defines the other disciplines. So a related reason that scripture is so valuable for us as we learn in the school of Jesus and connect with the vine is scripture is God's revelation of himself. Scripture is God's revelation of himself. You understand that God could have revealed himself via video, right? You're thinking, well, like 2,000 years ago, you know, YouTube wasn't invented. You don't think God could have invented it? He's God. He can invent what he wants. He, 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 could, he could have done it via Instagram. He could have written in the sky. He could have had someone paint a picture. He could have used anything he wanted to tell us his story and reveal his heart. He chose this book. This is what he chose to reveal himself to us. So if the goal of spiritual disciplines is to access and walk with God, then we must engage with the Bible because the Bible is God's self disclosure. God has chosen to reveal himself in his word, the scripture, primarily and then secondarily in other ways. Number three, scripture is the source of spiritual life. Scripture is the source of spiritual life. Uh, Perhaps this is obvious to you, but just in case it isn't, the Bible is what feeds us as Christians as we grow. 
Uh, Satan uh, once tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He tempted him after 40 days of fasting. So he wanted to capitalize on Jesus' weakness at the time. And he said to Jesus, look, if you're really God, look at these stones and turn them into bread. You haven't eaten for 40 days. I know you're hungry, so do it. And Jesus, listen to his response. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is affirming here that even his very life was fed by God's word, the scripture. If he needed it, we probably need it too. Don't you agree? (laughs) There really is no spiritual life apart from this book. Now, you may agree that the Bible has value for your spiritual life. You may agree that Scripture shapes all the other spiritual disciplines. You may agree that Scripture is God's revelation of himself. I don't know God apart from this book. You may agree that Scripture is the source of spiritual life, but you still have a struggle reading it sometimes, don't you? We could go through all those things and say, oh yeah, I have all those values. It defines the other disciplines and God reveals himself and it's the source of my spiritual life. It's like, well, how often do you read it? Rarely, if ever. And, and I don't, you know, I, I, like, and we have like, I, I hesitate to call them excuses because these are, I really do, understand me. Listen to my heart here. I don't think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna address four of them, four reasons that we don't read the Bible more. I really don't think they're excuses. Because excuses is when we blame circumstances for our own lack, you know? Like, oh, that's, I'm blaming this circumstance. I don't think these are, we blame circumstances. I just think we struggle sometimes to read the Bible on a regular basis, do we not? Some of you who, who love the Bible and you read it all the time, great, keep doing it, okay? Make sure it's lifting you up, not bearing, you know, not being a heavy burden on you. But for those of us who maybe struggle to read the Bible as often as we feel like we should, as often as we would like to or would like to read it more, I want to address four reasons why people don't read the Bible more or memorize the Bible more or get it into their head and heart more. And I want to give you some really, really practical tools to help you address those reasons, okay? So let's do it this way. Here's reason number one that people don't read the Bible, I think. Where do I start? It's like, man, that's kind of a big book, isn't it? I mean, there's 66 parts, and there's the Old and New Testament, and there's all these different genres, and, you know, what, what is going on in Song of Solomon, and the navel is a goblet, and what does that mean? Happy Valentine's Day, come ask me, I'll tell you what that means. Like, what, what is happening? Or you start to read the Bible, and you get, like, Genesis, Exodus, and it's, like, pretty exciting, and then you get to Leviticus, and what in the world is happening there? And then you get to Numbers, which is like aptly named, by the way, because it's just numbers, you know? And what, like, what in the world is this? What, where do I start? I'm going to give you four options of places to start. And I want to tell you a little bit about these books because they, you might find that one of them is like, hey, I actually like to read that kind of stuff. I like those kinds of stories. I like those kinds of things. Okay, Old Testament option number one, 1 Samuel. Start in 1 Samuel. If you're a fan of epic stories and epic movies, if you're like a Lord of the Rings type of person, if you're like a Pirates of the Caribbean type of person, there's no pirates in 1 Samuel, but that's an epic story. Um, Actually, 
you could maybe argue that there are pirates in 1 Samuel, but that's, that's beside the point. Not like Johnny Depp pirates, different kind of pirates. Okay? If you like, like murder and intrigue stories, you know, if you like wars, if you like marital infidelity, wait a minute. That came out wrong, didn't it? Um, that really did come out wrong. I can't correct that. If you like marital infidelity, that's me. I love marital infidelity. No, uh, this is what's going on in 1 Samuel, okay? This is what's happening in 1 Samuel. If you like epic stories like that, it's a fantastic place to start. If that's not you, if you're like, you know what? I'm more of like a poetry kind of person. I'm more of a touchy-feely type of person. Start in Psalms. Start in Psalms. 150 of them. They're just songs. They're just songs to God and poetry to God. Start in the Psalms. Let's give you two New Testament options. If you're brand new to the Bible, if you're brand new to things of faith, if you're brand new to Jesus, start with the book of John. Start with the book of John. This is basically a biography of the life of Jesus. And his best friend, who refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is all the other disciples that were following Rabbi Yeshua bar Joseph split when Jesus was crucified, except this guy. He stuck with him. And when Jesus died, he knew he was dying. He entrusted the care of his own mother to his best friend, John. And John wrote a story about Jesus, all the things he did. In fact, he concludes his gospel this way. I love it. The world isn't big enough to hold all the books it would take to talk about Jesus. It's pretty cool. He begins his story this way. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's a great place to start the book of John. If you're, if you're thinking, you know what, Luke, uh, you know, epic stories, songs, biography, the life of Jesus, those are great. I want practical Christian living stuff. I want advice for my Christian life. Here's a great place to start. Start in the book of James. Start in the book of James. It's practical Christian living. So you have a place to start. You have a place to start. So the second reason I think that people don't read the Bible as much as they maybe would like to is that they don't know how. They don't know how. And when I say this word, I don't know how, please understand, it's not like I'm not a literate person. I don't know how to read. What I mean is this is, a, this is a kind of a different type of book to understand, and there's different types of tools to help us understand what's really going on, and it's a spiritual text. You know, it's not like a textbook, and it's not a romance novel or anything like that, and so we read those things differently, but this book we've got to read a little bit differently, and so, so we're going, you know, I'm not sure I know how to read that book. I want to give you a tool that might help you do that. It's called REAP. It's up here on the screen, and you can jot it down as we go here, because this is a great tool as you start in 1 Samuel, John, James, or Psalms and you just take a chunk at a time, here's a great way to read the Bible and get something out of it such that it becomes a support system for your spiritual life. So the first thing you do is read. Read. And, and if you've got time, read the chunk or the text or the passage or the chapter or whatever. And it, you don't have to read a bunch. Just read a paragraph. In fact, if you look in your Bible, it's kind of split up and there's headings with each kind of 
chunk of text, if you, if you, if you kind of flip through there, you'll see those headings. Uh, that's not original to the text. God didn't put those headings in there. Modern editors put those headings in there. But they are really, really helpful in saying, okay, I, I'm not going to be able to tackle the entire New Testament today. Or I'm not going to be able to tackle the entire book of John. I'm not going to be able to even tackle the whole first chapter. But I can do 1 through 15, verses 1 through 15. It's not going to take me long. And so if you've got time, read them several times. Don't just read them once. Get your 30,000-foot view, and, you know, ideally you'd read it three times. Then go back through and examine it. Examine it. Here's what you do when you examine Scripture. You write down observations, just observations. You are not trying to figure out how it applies to my life. You're not trying to interpret it and bring it into modern culture and, you know, how does it apply to my family and all that stuff. Because if you skip this step, you will mess up Scripture real bad. If you, stop, if you don't, just make observations. So for those of you who choose to start in the book of John, you'll get to John chapter 4 at, at some point, and you'll read about a story where Jesus interacts with a woman at the well. So you would write down observations like this. Jesus was at a well. It was noontime. He started talking to a woman. She was Samaritan. They talked about worship. They talked about Jerusalem. Jesus wanted water. You just write down observations. You're not trying to apply it. You're just trying to examine it for observations. Because if you don't, I'm just telling you, there are Bible, like, I was going to say scholars. They're not really scholars. People write about the Bible all the time. You can buy other books at, like, Costco and stuff. And you're like, man, you just skipped this step completely, and you really messed it up. Okay? So don't skip that step. It's critical. Then you apply it. Then you apply it. And once you read and examine and do observations, apply the scripture to your life. My encouragement would be pick one thing. Don't pick nine things. Pick one thing. And here's a great way to apply scripture. Ask yourself two questions. What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about me? I just, I just read something, and I just wrote down a bunch of observations now, I want to apply it. So what does it tell me about God and what does it tell me about me? And then pray. And pray. Wrap it up by praying. So now you know how. Now you know how to read the scripture. Read it, examine it, apply it, and then pray. And then prayer would be things like this. God, thank you today that I read in your scripture and examined and observed and now can apply to my life that you will never leave me or forsake me. Thank you, God, today that I read in your scripture and observed, and now I can apply to my life that I'm adopted into your kingdom. Thank you, God, that I read in your scripture today, I examined and observed, and now I can apply to my life, James chapter 1, I can consider it pure joy when I face trials of many kinds because I know now that I've read it that the testing of my faith developed perseverance, and perseverance must finish its good work in me. That's it. That's it. It's not complicated. You know where to start. Now you know how. How about this? It's inconvenient. You ever think that? Like, man, I got my Bible, and it's gathering dust on my nightstand, and I get to the end of the day, and I want to read a little bit of the Bible, or I got to haul it to work with me. It's inconvenient. And again, hear my heart. 
I don't think this is an excuse for us. I think just sometimes it's, it's, it can be a little bit inconvenient. You don't, I just want to help you. Again, practical tools that help you to apply the scripture to your life and, and, and use it as part of your spiritual trellis and spiritual support structure. You ready? Everybody take out your phone. Take out your phone. Go to the app store. Download the app called YouVersion. It's up here on the screen, YouVersion. It's free. And you can get your entire Bible on your phone. Thank you, Steve Jobs. It's amazing. He didn't write the app. But it's a good app. So I've got it actually here in front of me. My verse of the day today is First John, or John 15, 13. We just talked about John. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's great. It's got reading plans on here. It's got 41 Bible stories just for kids. Now I'm just interacting with the app. I'm not even preaching anymore. This is great. I was just reading Matthew uh, chapter 23 this week, so that's what I was recently reading. They've got reading plans on here. So it's like, you know what? I want to read through the Bible in a year. That'll help you do it. I want to read through the Bible in 90 days. That'll help you do it. I want to read through some scripture and prepare for Easter. That'll help you do it. Guess what? You version will actually read the Bible out loud for you, believe it or not. So when you do the reap thing, you don't even have to do the first step. Someone else will do it for you. You can, you can hook it up to the Bluetooth in your car, on your commute. You can plug your headphones in and just listen to somebody read the scripture for you. It's not inconvenient anymore. You have you version. It's free. This is like the one time it's appropriate to take out your phone in church, okay? Take it out. Search the app store, download it. For those of you who have a flip phone, we'll get you a copy of the actual Bible. Okay, um, <laughs> this is great. <clears throat> which, which is fine. I, I, that's why I have the hard copy of it. I love having a hard copy of it. I use version too, but I love having a hard copy of it. Um, so I don't, mean to, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to mock. That's, that's inappropriate. Sorry about that. Kind of. Um, here's the last reason I think that, that, that we don't read the scripture a ton, right? Because I get bored. I get bored. You ever do that? Again, you get to numbers, and it's like this is 66,000 from the tribe of Judah, 72,000. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm just, I'm falling asleep. Can I just suggest a couple of things to you to shift that? Because remember, this is not supposed to be a heavy burden. Learning from Rabbi Jesus is not a heavy yoke. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. The trellis is not supposed to weigh us down. This is part of our spiritual trellis. It's supposed to lift us up. So getting bored with the Bible is not what was intended. So let me give you some practical tools to help you get unbored. Ready? Memorize it. Memorize it. <clears throat> if you start in the book of Psalms, if you start your little reading in the book of Psalms, here's how it will start. Blessed is the, here's how it will start. Uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither or, or leaf does not wither or fade. Me memorize it. It'll cause you to not get so bored with it. Studying it helps you to cause not get so bored with it. So study the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God. Helps you to not get bored with it. Don't stop at just, you know, memorizing it, but meditate on it. Here's a great way to meditate on God's word, just a trick, by the way. Take one verse, 
It's just a real practical tool. Take one verse and memorize it. You've got to memorize it in order to meditate on it. And read it to yourself over and over in your head. But every time you go through it, emphasize the next word in, emphasize it in your mind, the next word in the verse. So I'll give you an example. John 3, 16, many of us memorized this growing up if you grew up in church. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What if I emphasized one word at a time? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world. Wow, that changes it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Does that change it every time? Every time? Just run it through in your head. Meditate on the scripture. Run it through in your head. Emphasize different words as you go through it. It will help it kind of take root in your heart and eventually bear fruit, which is what we were meant to do. Study it. Great way to keep the Bible from getting boring. Pick up some commentaries. There's all kinds of free resources online. If you want to get real serious, there's a Bible software out there called Logos, L-O-G-O-S. It's really intuitive, really easy. It's expensive, but it's worth it. If, if cost is an issue for you, come to my office. I'll give you some great tools. I'll give you a book called Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. I'll give you a book called How to Study the Bible. I'll let you borrow some of my commentaries. You will have to check them out and leave your firstborn with me, which is fine. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll loan you some of that stuff because I want you to know the Word of God. Study the Word of God. It helps it to come alive in a new way, and it helps to remove that boring piece. You want if you, like, if this is you, if you're like, you know what, I really, like, the Bible really gets boring for me, and I've tried meditating on it, I've tried memorizing, I've tried studying it, it's still really boring for me. You, you want me to solve it for you? Here, 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 here we go. Teach it. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Good luck on the Bible being boring when you're teaching it. Because what's going to happen is you're going to get in a Sunday school class with a seven-year-old kid, and they're going to ask you a question, and you don't know the answer to it. You're going to think to yourself, I am 60 years old, and a seven-year-old just asked me a question, and I don't know the answer. So what you do in that situation is you say, you know what, little Johnny or little Susie or whatever it is, I would love to answer your question, but right now it's snack time. And so we're going to go do that. <laughs> And then next week, because I know the answer now, of course, because I'm, I'm teaching you. So, you know, certainly I know this, but we just don't have time because the goldfish are waiting for us to have a snack, right? And then you go get the answer and you come back next week and you act like you knew it. But it will help you, I promise you, teaching the word of God. How many of you know that when you teach something, it comes alive? And That's right. That's right. Doesn't matter what it is. Teach the word of God. We need people in our Sunday school classes. We need people in our youth ministry that are helping young people read, examine, apply, and pray about the word of God. If it's become boring to you, teach it. It will solve it for you, I promise. So here's my hope today. Here's my hope is that you understand this. That walking with Jesus, taking his yoke upon us, is an easy yoke and a light burden. Spiritual discipleship in the school of Jesus is not a heavy yoke. It's a spiritual support structure that helps us grow 
and bear fruit. So let's not focus on these heavy obligations, but let's add a piece to our spiritual trellis today in the form of Bible intake, reading and memorizing, meditating on the word of God such that it lifts us up and changes us from the inside out and causes us to bear fruit. We good? Perfect. Here's what we're going to do to close. Uh, We're going to receive communion. For those of you who who have never received, ushers, if you'd stay where you're at, because I don't want anybody moving, just want to stay where you're at, ushers, thanks, thanks, thank you. Um, Because I don't want anybody moving. I want us to understand what's going on when we receive communion together. For those of you who don't know, the night before Jesus was betrayed, uh, the night before he went to the cross, he was having dinner with his disciples. And during dinner, he took this loaf of bread and he gave thanks. So he prayed and he thanked God for the food. And he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this bread represents my body. It's given for you. Take and eat it and remember me. Then he took a cup and he said, this cup and the wine that's in this cup, it's not wine for us today, it's juice, nobody panic. So this, what's in this cup represents a new covenant, which is in my blood. So it represents my blood, take and drink and remember me. And for 2,000 years, the church has been doing this. When we gather together, we've been receiving the bread that represents the body of Christ given for us and the cup that represents the blood of Christ shed for us. And when we do that, we remember the great lengths that God went to in order to save us. We remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. And we thank God for the sacrifice that he made. This is a very special time for our community of faith. So if you are new here with us and you know Jesus, we practice open table here. So if you've said yes to Jesus, anyone and everyone is welcome to partake in communion with us. However, if you've not said yes to Jesus, if you don't know him, if you're examining things of faith, I would just encourage you to pass on this part of the service. Just pass that plate by you and worship with us and think on it and meditate and pray and all those things. But this is for folks who have said yes to Jesus and who can celebrate the sacrifice that is made for them. As we do that, the band is going to come up and lead us, ushers. If you would stand and go to the back and uh, prepare to serve us. What I'm going to invite you to do is take a little piece of bread and a little cup, hang on to them during the song, and we'll receive them together at the end of the song. And while the band sings and the worship team sings, you are welcome to join in with them. But we uh, come to God and we confess any known sin, enjoy his forgiveness. We allow him, even as Jonathan read in our worship time, to search our heart and know us, see if there's any grievous way in us. We lay it before him in confession, enjoy his forgiveness, and then turn to his table together and celebrate the body of Christ and the blood of Christ given for you and me. Ushers, if you would come forward as we pray. God, we thank you even that as we receive communion here, that this is outlined in the scripture. The only reason we would even know that this existed is because you revealed it to us in your word. God, remind us of your grace today. We pray, oh God, that we would fall on you, that we would declare even in receiving these elements that you are our only hope, you are our only joy. We are poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked, as Revelation would say, without you. But you invite us and call us to you to buy bread without money, 
that you would clothe us, God, in your righteousness. As you pour out your grace and favor on us. Thank you, God. Thank you for your mercy today. And thank you for the reminder that communion is. In Christ's name, the people of God together said,